This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome along to another edition of Business Impact. This is the podcast of UCD Business School, and it is that one at the end of the year when we cram all the threads, themes, topics, and subjects into one big, long, freestyling 30-minute conversation with two of our guests. We have been spending the last few years looking back at diseases and wars and all the rest of it. 2023, slightly better, but we still do have the presence of wars, inflation, and other things. But things like the COVID pandemic, etc., have eased. So it is a different type of year have a sense that there's a little bit of a can before the storm because we do have a lot of elections likely in 2024, which are going to throw up all sorts of geopolitical uh, pinch points, the US, the UK, Ireland, of course, with a European local election, even a general election. And there are a few others around the world as well. So it's going to be very much a political year in 2024, but it has been a great financial year in 2023. Lots of stories I was trawling through. Sometimes the list as you troll through can be quite short, but this time around it's actually more about condensing it down because there was quite a lot going on across a number of sectors. Some of the usual personalities, um, some have joined the list, some are leaving the list due to death and uh, misfortune in their careers. And then, of course, some famous companies have had different waxing and waning fortunes as we've gone through the year. Let me introduce my guest, though, however. I have Linda Daly with me, who is a business correspondent with The Sunday Times. She recently won Interview of the Year, no less, from the UCD Business School in their awards category. So well done to her. And we're also joined by Donald O'Donovan, who is a regular guest. He has suffered through this conversation for several years now with me. I think we recorded our first one, Donald, with you in 2020. So thankfully, uh, the mood music out there and the outside world society is a little bit better uh, since then. So you're both very welcome, uh, Linda and Donald, to this conversation. And Hopefully our listeners will find it interesting. We're piecing together all the big events. We'll, of course, inevitably leave something out. It is um, edited and we do select and we do amplify certain things and downplay others just simply because we don't have time to get to everything. There's no other greater conspiracy going on here than that. So it's about uh, time saving and keeping the conversation interesting. Donald, if I could kick off with you first. Um, It is a fresh year and every time a year rolls around, we get new teams. We expect things to be different and maybe unique events that we haven't seen before coming along. But there was a sense at the start of the year of an old friend coming onto the agenda, especially for myself and yourself, which was eruption of a banking crisis all over again in March. Seems like a long time ago, but we lost a number of US banks. Silicon Valley Bank was the most high profile. We also lost another one called First Republic, which was sold off to JP Morgan. And we've had European banking wobbles with Credit Suisse as well. So was this banking crisis, which we hope has passed, was it just a small version of the old banking crisis of 09, 010 and 11? Or was there something else going on from what you could see? Some of it, I think, in the case of Credit Suisse, was probably a hangover from way back then. It's bank that's never quite right at itself. Silicon Valley was interesting, though. It came on the back of a couple of things, and, and one of them was the tech wreck. So, you know, if we were talking this time last year, we were talking this time last year about a crisis in the technology sector and a, and a, and a lot of jobs being lost. Uh, and Silicon Valley Bank is very much at the center of that world. Partly what was happening there was it was the kind of luster coming off that sector, people looking at that bank, seeing things that they didn't like in that bank in terms of it, it had just a lot of money put in the wrong places and really didn't have wherewithal to uh, to sustain its returns. But interestingly enough, 
when that happened, notwithstanding the fact that it was very much a part of that Silicon Valley ecosystem and venture capitalists kind of used it for lots of reasons, it was the first real digital bank run that we've seen. So it was a bank run that happened online. There was no queues outside banks as such. But also what was interesting, I suppose, about that bank, and there were other banks that, that came under a lot of pressure and other banks, as you say, that were gobbled up by bigger lenders, but it didn't cause the kind of systemic crisis that we saw, you know, a decade ago when any bank that sort of fell over would have been regarded as kind of a huge global issue. Those banks fell. Now, in, in the case of Silicon Valley, the government in the US moved very quickly to protect all of the the savers, much more maybe than they should have done um, because there's a moral hazard around that, particularly when the savings are really business savings. Bondholders were burnt, though, and the winding up was was pretty orderly and, and contained. And similarly, in the case of Credit Suisse, Swiss authorities and UBS in particular moved very rapidly, I think, to sort of wrap their arms around what might have been a big crisis there if it had been left to linger or if it had kind of been a wounded bank that sort of gradually died over six months. A fascinating part you, you briefly mentioned there, which is the idea of a bank run happening on your smartphone. I mean, corporate treasurers can just move money, billions uh, measured in billions generally very quickly. They they don't need much. So, so a tweet or, or a post of some kind of social media can go out there and a lot of people just want to be more safe than sorry and just might simply say, let's just move our money out if it's not locked down. So it doesn't mean that the banks need to be aware that there's there's a new power in the hands of every saver now that maybe wasn't there before, don't. Yeah, and they need to be, I think, super conscious after that one that, oh, okay, fine, there were problems at Silicon Valley Bank, but it could just as easily happen now that a, a message could go out on WhatsApp that a bank or an, another financial institution is unsound, whether that's true or not, if you like, and that people would be in a position to act very rapidly in terms of moving money digitally out of that institution. And that's something I think that all bank treasurers need now to be like super conscious of. It's very difficult to guard against. You can find, you know, predict the problems in your own institution and, and, and where the pinch points might be. But if there's no problem in your institution and somebody's out there saying it, the impact might just be just as great. So it's a real, real difficulty, I think, um, that banks are going to have way into the future. So the other thing in, in terms of banking was um, when Credit Suisse went over, the person who really got was thrust into the spotlight and thrust to the top of the heap was Colm Kelleher. And that obviously is of interest here. He's an Irish guy, grew up in England, really, but he's an Irish guy, longtime number two at Morgan Stanley, very well regarded, I think, in, in investment banking, but as a kind of a number two at a bullish bracket investment bank and really stamped his authority all over UBS, Credit Suisse and European banking very rapidly early in the year. And has kind of emerged as a really, really big beast now, notwithstanding that he is effectively a retired executive. And that's kind of interesting, I think, in terms of people's careers and career trajectories and second acts. Now, Linda, back here at home, obviously the Irish banks weren't racked by closures and, and it was a lot more stable a picture. But there, there's a growing sense, uh, rightly or wrongly, but there's a growing sense that savers in particular have been getting a raw deal from the Irish banks. Um, the three in question, obviously, are AIB, Bank of Ireland and PTSB, as they're known these days. What do you make of that story? And, and where do you think the Irish banks are kind of positioned in the consumer mind at this point when they, they look around some of these other events in, in other countries? I suppose from a consumer's perspective, they can see that here we have mortgage rates skyrocketing um, up by 4.5% on the year. And then when you look at the savings, savers haven't been getting nearly half as much as that. 
I mean, I suppose the argument is that it takes banks longer. You know, they, they don't directly follow the European Central Bank move. So the savers are always going to kind of be the last to benefit from it. Profits are up, I think, to the third quarter. AIB and, and Bank of Ireland both reported about 854 million, 853 million in net profits. So when you, when you look at figures like that, you would say, well, let's pass it on to savers and consumers. However, as reported in, in my own paper there recently, investors aren't kind of taking that view and, and they're being a bit reluctant and as fair prices have gone down on maybe the back of expectation that interest rates will fall next year. Yeah, and I suppose, Donald, looking at across the different sectors, uh, one that's kind of, that may be slightly peculiar because it's not something that we as business um, commentators kind of report on that much, but RTE uh, racked by, it has to be said, various scandals, some small, some big, some involved people having cars, other people involved uh, payments that weren't fully declared at the time. Uh, we don't want to rake over all of those codes, but do you think the, the year ends, you know, are Orti in a better position as the year ends despite everything that happened? Or do you think this story is still running out there? Do you think they're not out of the woods fully from a corporate governance point of view? Or how do you think the year ends after all the shouting is over and all the headlines have, have slipped away? How do you see the organisation being positioned? I think it's been, you know, significantly weakened and it will go into the new year and, and really the next decade significantly weakened. It, it is that thing when when an institution is in trouble, um, everything comes out of the woodwork, really. And there was a lot of that kind of over the summer. But there, like there is a fundamental issue there, I, I suppose, in terms of, you know, starting with that Ryan Tuberty pay issue. There had been significant corporate governance failings at RTE. As the threads were pulled there, those corporate governance failings became more and more obvious. The oversight of the institution seems to have been particularly weak uh, and in terms of of the board's involvement in in really interrogating management there seems to just to be a total lack of that the board seems to have positioned itself almost kind of as a as an intermediary between the the management and and the government in terms of seeking money and seeking supports and things like that and not really positioned itself as as overseers of the institution and that came at a really bad time for RTE because RTE was already in trouble. Like all media organizations, its kind of historic income is going or threatened. And its historic role is maybe a little bit up in the air. RTE is a real odd fish in many ways because it's it's both a public service broadcaster, but also engaged in lots of private sector things and competing with the private sector in lots and lots of ways. It does lots of different things. It spends a lot of money. Some of it is income that generates itself, but a lot of it isn't. And it really needed to be able to explain in great detail and with great authority how all that worked and repeatedly and consistently failed to be able to do that. And I think that it's going to be a smaller institution into the future. Orti, I think, at a corporate level wants to be everything and it just can't be. And the ability of Orti as an institution to argue its case, I think, has been kind of really swept away, if you like. So other people now are going to define what Orti is into the future and they will be ministers and they will be um, government and things like that. And RTE is going to have to be reshaped. So it's not going to be the same institution that it was 12 months ago. Now, Linda, in terms of obviously Donald is listing out all those corporate governance threats and, and what its role is in Irish life. But, but do you think viewers care? I mean, in the sense that if the programming is good enough, they'll watch. If it isn't, they won't watch. I mean, how do you think the person sitting at home on their sofa has been hit by this? Um, do you think there's a connection between what happens on boards and management? Or, or do you think, as I say, the programming is everything? People will either rally to that or they won't. I mean, I think there's a lot of, of viewers around the country, and I think we underestimate it, who actually do only watch RT1 and RT2 and, and all they want is the good programming. I suppose really 
from a consumer's perspective, there's a lot of anger there. You know, people are refusing to pay their television license and, and how quickly that, you know, intake went down. Now, Kevin Backhurst has said in the last few days that it looks like, you know, some people have been paying it again. I suppose really, and it's not really something that has been covered too much in the private media because we're all quite critical of RTE and, and its, its, its extent in the market. But it's the government's job to collect those television licenses or well, it's on post job to collect the television license. But there seemed to be this kind of carte blanche attitude, you know, from the government. There was no sort of pressuring until Pascal Donoghue came out there a few weeks ago and finally said, we, you know, we need to people need to comply with the law and it is the law to pay your television license. But I do think, you know, a lot of government ministers we're refusing to kind of encourage people because it, it's this rope around the, the politician's neck, you know, that they might increase the television license or encourage people to pay it. And there's this fear that, you know, that they'll be seen to kind of go against the grain of what the, the population wants. Now, the other thing, apart from RT, which dominates, there's probably two stories, RT and then inflation stroke prices and it's I, unfortunately it's a bit unfair on the two of you because as we end the year the picture is not entirely clear so uh, it is a bit of an unfair question but uh, nevertheless I'll ask it which is is inflation over as in the rises that we saw throughout 2023 some of them very big leap forward in prices is that actually ended or at least slowing down and um, Donald where do you think we are and I'm particularly noting Ireland where the picture is a bit mixed on one hand the the harmonised one has it down at 2.3%, but the CPI has us down at 3.9%. So it's hard to even get a read between those two figures. But would you go as far as saying that that inflation prices rising as opposed to the, the, the you know, the slowing down or that the rate of rise slowing down is over for 2023 and we could see interest rate cuts in the new year? Or would you be a little bit more sanguine and say, look, this this fight is not quite at the end yet? I know. I, I think the very, very high inflation that really we saw in 2022 is over. And I think it's reasonably clear that a lot of what caused that was reasonably transitory. So there were particular pressures that came on global supply chains after COVID. There were rapid increases in prices in some things, shortages in, in some areas like chips. There was a problem in the Suez Canal. And there was a kind of a perfect storm, which then, um, as we saw subsequently, corporations were able to jump on in order to pad out their profits as well. So we had very high profits in 2022. And that kind of phase is over. Inflation is normalizing at a significantly lower rate than it was. And I, I think we will see inflation in around the 2% mark next year. But it, it's worth bearing in mind that 2% is what economists might regard as normal inflation, but it's massively higher than the kind of inflation that we had in the previous decade. So before COVID, we were used to inflation that was dramatically below the 2% level and had been for a long time. And there were lots of kind of global reasons for that. But I think we're through the worst in terms of the post-COVID spike in inflation. But we should anticipate a more normal, so an historically more normal level of inflation around the 2%. It might be 3% one year, it might be 1% one year, way out into the future. And there, there are lots of reasons for that. One is the whole global economy is changing and, and, and it's changing in terms of there's a huge amount of retrofitting and environmental kind of spending and infrastructure spending that had been 
delayed and put off and delayed and put off and is now happening. And that is inflationary. It's necessarily inflationary. And if you think about every garage in, in the world, if you like, has to have now the tools to fix electric cars, as well as the t- tools to fix your normal kind of uh, petrol or diesel engine, then every mechanic has to buy new tools. And, and that's inflationary. And the same thing for housing, the same thing for plumbing, the same thing for, for buildings. So there are going to be kind of, I think, long-term inflationary pressures, but not the kind of thing that we've seen. That obviously means that when shocks do happen, like the Suez Canal getting blocked or an invasion of Ukraine that puts pressure on energy supplies, then the danger is that inflation can spike again off a higher base. So I think there is definitely a long tail to the inflation that we're seeing, a shift really, if you like, in terms of inflation. I would expect that to happen. At the same time, we're not seeing inflation that needs to be reined in by high interest rates. And in that case, interest rates should come down. DCB has a very hawkish bent. I think there are a lot of people in there who are who are kind of very nervous of having a low interest rate regime long term. So they may be very slow to reduce their interest rates and slower maybe than the, the data would justify. But but ultimately, if we have inflation normalizing, then we should have interest rates normalizing and, and that should happen. You threw one ha- word out there into the pot, which was housing, which kind of nicely segues me on to the, the property side of things, where, where Linda, you chronicle this stuff on, on a weekly basis. Uh, I know uh, that's something that you're really attuned to, both commercial and residential. I mean, if to me anyway, as an outsider, more on it, I mean, you've got a vacancy rate at about 15% in the office market in Dublin. I'm sure it'll oscillate, you know, maybe higher or lower than when people actually get to hear this recording. But there, there seems a lot of empty buildings. Initially, the work from home movement, which came out of COVID was, you know, some people kind of said, ah, this will be a short term thing and office land will just return to normal. But, but it doesn't seem to be fully returning to normal. And then on top of that, you have higher interest rates, which means that the, the financing of construction or the, the actual uh, deals that go behind commercial property are, are impacted as well. So where do you think we're going on this? I mean, obviously, we haven't seen kind of we've seen buildings renegotiated, leases renegotiated, but we haven't seen kind of property companies going bust or we haven't seen kind of developers going under that much that I've noticed. So do you think a lot of the losses are yet to come, Linda, or do you think they're not that bad? Or what's your own take on that whole area? There's a lot of paralysis in the market at the moment. And like, you know, it's purposeful paralysis in that a lot of the companies, you know, the owners of the properties, there's not so much pressure on them that they have to sell. So they're kind of been waiting and, and, and stalling. And those properties that did sell uh, sold at a discount. And, you know, there hasn't been much, I think, like a really low amount of properties that have sold this year in the commercial real estate market. I do think next year we will see more properties coming on and they will be at a discounted rate. With, with regards to vacancy, I mean, yeah, vacancy levels um, when it comes to kind of companies taking up office space are about 15%, as you said, and it's expected to go to 16% next year. But that's not including the grey space. So if you take the likes of Meta and they have Fibonacci Square, so they've rented out the the former AIB Bank Centre, but they decided that they're not going to move into Fibonacci Square. So that's considered grey space, but it's not actually on the official vacancy rate of 16%. So we will see a lot of that next year as, as more companies kind of downsize. Now, there are some big corporations like EY that, that are in the market um, you know, to take up new space and to move out of their older buildings. And I suppose from speaking to agents throughout the year, that's what they see, that there's this kind of tale of two markets. So you have the older office space and the newer office space. There's not that much new office space coming on that hasn't been already assigned to some corporation like KPMG has taken 
space at the bottom of Harcourt Street there. So what you'll see is companies moving out from the older offices into the newer offices. And it's the older offices that will struggle to get tenants. So what will happen with them is they'll either sell so that they can be updated or they'll change use. Um, It's just a matter of when that happens. You know, I think people will be dragging their heels as long as they can, you know, because they just don't want to reduce the prices and property owners want to get the best price that they can. Yeah, I suppose it's a, a bit of an extended pretend uh, kind of a regime to some degree uh, from what you're saying there. Uh, I want to move a little bit of the conversation onto the personalities. It's not all just about companies and, and financial ratios and uh, all the rest of it. There are real people, some of them interesting, some of them maybe not as likable that uh, dominate the business uh, discourse that we're all involved in. Uh, Donald, one that obviously probably the most prominent business personality of the year globally was Elon Musk. At least that's what I'm asserting you know, his control of three big companies, Twitter, Stroke X, uh, Tesla Cars and SpaceX. I mean, it puts them, I suppose, in media headlines. They're all compelling sectors that a lot of us kind of find interesting. And he's at the center of all three. I mean, it's been a mixed year for him in the sense that, you know, Twitter, the valuation of that company has plummeted down. So he hasn't managed that asset particularly well. But equally, he's had some success with SpaceX. And then there was a recall on his cars at Tesla uh, towards the book end of the year. So, so I mean, is this just me or is it still an Elon Musk universe that we're, we're all sort of inside or, or is he just a guy because he's running the sectors he is that he gets a lot of um, eyeballs looking at him? Well, if you, I mean, he seems to be a guy who likes to have a lot of eyeballs looking at him. So he definitely courts controversy, he courts attention. Um, he's very rich. He's regarded as the richest person in the world. Now, how you've really assess that is is tricky but he, yeah, I mean he's very very rich he's very very opinionated he has some important businesses SpaceX I suppose was really interesting in terms of Ukraine this year and the kind of extent to which Ukrainian forces could or couldn't rely on on on, on their satellite linkups uh, at one point became very contentious what remains of Twitter X it looks like it's dying um, he spent an absolute fortune on it it's very difficult really to see that it's worth all that much Tesla's an interesting business because they obviously were Really good at um, at capturing the imagination in terms of electric cars, really before anyone else could do that. And, and, and they did a really good job in that way that cars can be sexy by making electric cars sexy. His kind of polarizing character probably is not great for that business long term, you would have to think, because the kind of people who are attracted to environmentally sustainable cars are maybe not the kind of people who are attracted to the direction of travel on X. And the kind of very kind of strident anti-woke vibe that he's he's now giving off. He's an interesting character. He's he's very rich. He's involved in interesting sectors. He's divisive. And you wonder really long term, can his large and kind of consumer facing businesses benefit or will they be damaged by being that divisive of a character? Now, the other personalities I mentioned, we obviously lost Ben Dunn. Uh, Retail Supremo is how he's generally described. Uh, Dunn Stores, of course, what he was associated with. Um, Tony O'Reilly's wife, uh, Christine Goulandris, passed away, uh, very sad, at 73. So she has left the stage. And then bring in another personality as well. Uh, Linda, I, I don't know how much we could say about this, but Dennis O'Brien losing the control of his Digicel company uh, during the year. Uh, the bondholders seem to have moved in there. So uh, any reflections from you on any of those characters, Dennis O'Brien, Ben Dunn, etc.? Uh, which one of those uh, caught you right? 
Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'd interviewed Ben a couple of times in recent years. Um, he was very different to the rest of the, of the family and the fact that you could call up his mobile and he'd never hang up on you or talk to you. I don't know a lot of people who have any of his family's mobile numbers, but, um, you know, he was quite receptive to the media. So a lot of us, when we heard, were sad. I suppose really he was such a giant in the Irish, you know, landscape for years. I mean, you know, he wasn't a saint um, and everybody knows that and he... He was involved in, in some scandals involving Charlie Hawhey and Michael Lowry and, um, you know, and, and that was well proven in the McCracken Tribunal. But I do think it's a loss. And, and you know, especially for people around Dublin where his gyms are located, you know, his, his name is synonymous. So, you know, I have an 18 year old daughter who knew who Ben Dunn was as much as my parents would have. Hopefully she doesn't know who Elon Musk is. We'll be doing well, right? <laughs> she does, unfortunately. She does. <laughs> um, the other one that uh, Donald might bring you in on is in the publishing area. We have uh, Rupert Murdoch, who is this, you know, talismanic, totemic figure in publishing and newspapers and also television. Uh, he's not dead, just to uh, make that clear, the 92-year-old, but he is stepping aside for his son, Lachlan Murdoch, who will now control News Corp, which is the, the newspaper business. And then they've got Fox Corp, which obviously controls the TV station in America. I mean, I suppose the remarkable thing is his age in itself is interesting. 92 and still running until very recently, these giant multinational media conglomerates. Uh, and what, what do you make of this? Is he really going, do you think? Or is he going to influence things uh, from aside uh, through his son? What do you make of developments in that? The, the real life succession? Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to believe he's, he's entirely left the stage, I suppose. It's worth saying that that business is much smaller than that business was historically. And, and like all legacy media businesses, it is not the business that it was really when he and, and it were in their pomp and sort of could really, I suppose, in the UK, influence the uh, appointment of cabinet ministers and even and even prime ministers, certainly that's how they would have presented themselves to the world, you know, with the Sun and the Times historically. Look, it's at the end of an era and probably good thing for it. They stamped a version, I suppose, of the economy and society and politics very clearly onto onto all of those those countries. And, and what's the legacy? Well, the legacy is probably Brexit and Trump and a very difficult political situation in Australia you know, more indirect, really, by colouring the uh, the shape of, of political discourse. But like, it's, yeah, it's hard to see that as a, as a particularly positive legacy in terms of, you know, outside the business. And inside the business, he's made huge money. He's made huge money for shareholders over the years, launched genre-defining businesses in terms of Fox in the US, in terms of, of what the sun became in the UK in particular. Very quick to spot the, the potential for satellite television, very quick to spot the potential for for partisanship in US politics and how that could could create huge businesses. But I, I think probably the regulators who allowed that to happen initially and, and, and the creation of, of what became Fox and CNN as these very sort of partisan broadcasting giants in the US, I, I suspect would regret what they created, what they allowed to be created in terms of the eroding of a common understanding, if you like, among citizens of the US, which is going to be very interesting in terms of the general election there coming up this year. I'm just conscious of time as well. Just briefly, Dennis O'Brien, bad year, good year, lost control of Digicel, but he's still in there. He's still involved in the management of the company. And I know he's put an arrangement together where he can still benefit from the upside in the business, but but he's not got as much control as he had, put it that way. So do you put it into bad year or good year from, from his perspective? It's a really interesting one. I suppose last year was a terrible year in that it looked like that business was in, in real trouble, particularly as the, the situation in Haiti disintegrated really. And, and, and that really badly hit their income and their margin at a point in time when they really could have done without that. What's fascinating about Dennis O'Brien this year is that 
you know, having cut many deals with bondholders over the year that that allowed him to scrape by as in in control this time, he didn't fight that hard. He didn't fight certainly to hold on to uh, majority control. So he's allowed himself to see majority control becoming one of a number of shareholders. I suppose in purely financial terms, a business that is in debt negotiation with its bondholders up to the tune of potentially two billion of a write-down is not worth anything. So it's it's better to own ten percent of a business that's worth that two billion, if you like, versus versus one hundred percent of a business where the valuation is on the floor. But it, that's a tough thing to do, I think, and particularly when you've when you've had the whip hand, I suppose, in your businesses for so long. So it's it's a very interesting kind of final act in terms of. Digicel, which is a business he founded, business he took a lot of money out over over the years, but he's allowed that really to go to new owners without putting up an enormous fight. I'm I'm sure he negotiated hard for the position that that he came away with, but he certainly didn't go to court. You weren't looking at kind of this kind of island by island fight for control, if you like, the kind of things that we've seen in in other cases where extra billionaires have have been at at, at risk of losing their business. It's quite conciliatory, quite a clean handover of of the reins in the end, yeah. Linda, I don't know who's going to play him in the movie, but I suspect Sam Bankman-Fried, who was from the crypto company FTX, is going to appear in a movie, mainly because he was so young, Secondly, he had incredibly uh, tousled curly hair, so I think that will go well cinematically. But we haven't got him sentenced yet, but he was found guilty. So that was a real blow for the crypto world, wasn't it? Because he was one of those sort of poster boys of that particular financial movement. You know, there was a, the time in 2022 when crypto was on everybody's lips and it seemed to just fall off a cliff in, in 2023. And, and most of that was down to, I think, that trial of Sam Bankman-Fried and and the fact that maybe it revealed that crypto wasn't as sound as everybody thought it was, or its cult followers thought it was, at least. People are expecting that maybe he'll get 100 years in prison. His fortune was wiped out by $2 billion. He was accused of stealing $10 billion. And now he obviously has denied that, but he, he was found guilty over in the US. So Yeah, no, only in the US could you be facing a possible sentence of 115 years in jail. Only in the US could that kind of a, a tariff be imposed on you. Um, just to go through it very briefly, because we're under time pressure, just some of the big deals of the year. Cubic Telecom was purchased by SoftBank for $473 million. Another one that didn't maybe get as much um, coverage at the time, but Terry Clune sold his payroll software business Amidas for 575 million uh, euros. It has been reported uh, staff sharing in some of that as well. And there was also a big pharma deal, uh, Chiesi Pharmaceutical, if I've pronounced that right, which is a rare disease specialist, uh, bought out the company Amerit Pharma. So there's been a lot of big chunky M&A deals um, earlier in the year, less so in the final part of the year. But as we bring our conversation to a halt, I want to ask this maybe slightly strange question on the surface, which is, will any of the three of us be here this time next year? Or will we be all three chatbots called Ernie, Susan and, and John or whatever the names are? There are Bard, of course, which is the Google one. I'm talking about ChatGPT. It actually launched properly commercially during the year under review. Obviously, there's a lot of um, emulators have come on since then and AI has been really fired up. You can see that in the valuations. Donald, you first. How much hype is in this area? Is it justified? Is it merited? Um, what did you make of ChatGPT coming along? And where do you think the AI thing is going to kind of evolve and shape out over 2024? Yeah, there's an enormous amount of hype and there's hype around valuations and there's hype around kind of some of the you know descriptions of the potential. There is very good technology as well. And probably a lot of us have been using AI versions of AI at, at work for quite a long time. You know, a lot, I know an awful lot of journalists would use um, Otter, which is a, 
transcription service, but it's a transcription service that gets better the more you use it. It is learning, if you like, in kind of colloquial terms. Yeah, a huge amount of hype, though. I worked, I suppose I started working around the time of the dot-com, the initial dot-com, an awful lot of hype then. An awful lot of companies were founded that lost money. Any business that loses money on an ongoing basis is not a sustainable business. And I think anyone who's looking at AI investments should should always bear that in mind. If the business loses money by doing its business, then it then it, it it's got a problem. It may be a problem that can be fixed over time, but it's definitely a problem. It should always be regarded as a problem. There will be survivors, I suppose, but I, th- I think some of the technology will just become ubiquitous. And and what's interesting is, I suppose, the the amounts of money that are that are are being put into this mean that it's already dominated. Um, on the commercial side, certainly by kind of, you know, the big establishment um, business and an interesting how well Microsoft has been able to kind of manage this system and manage open AI into its embrace, if you like. I suspect there's a lot of non-commercial, less commercial stuff being done in universities away from Silicon Valley, where the hype machine is maybe toned down a bit. And that will be interesting to see as it, as it comes through. But in terms of game-changing technology, I would have thought that this year it was the drugs industry that really threw them up. And Ozempic, I, I, I think, is is a kind of business that's not just changing, you know, the pharmaceuticals business and the medicals profession is already starting to change. The snacking industry will change the agricultural sector. And the changes there could be very profound right across the economy. Linda, will you be here next year or, or will we get a chatbot called something else? <laughs> I, I hope I'll be here next year. I mean, yeah, it is a fear among some journalists. I do know Donald's um, boss who I interviewed during the week uh, the year rather in Media House you know is using and and he, he pointed out that you know they're using it to the benefit you know not to waste journalists time there, there are many ways that it can be used you know law firms are now using AI so it's it's to make the most of people's time so I suppose we shouldn't be afraid of it and actually my daughter who is also in college who I previously mentioned the universities are encouraging their students to use chat GPT from what I've been told anyway. And in some respects, you know, they're trying to use it to the students' benefits. So produce a question, but so that they're not cheating, but they're going to kind of start looking at ways to perhaps change exams and back to written exams. So the pen might sell well next year. Yeah, we're all back to pen and paper. Certainly some of my students, they, they look a bit panicked when you ask them to write something without any electronic assistance. So you're definitely right. We want more ideas from the student themselves directly as opposed to assisted ideas. So that's definitely the way we're going to go. Thanks, Donald, for also mentioning the, the slimming drugs, because I think uh, that is definitely going to be one of the things. It's very hard to get in Ireland, obviously, at the moment, but They'll be here soon and they will have all sorts of economy-wide effects. Thanks to you both. We're unfortunately out of time. We've rattled through everything as diverse as slimming drugs right over to Sam Bank, Manfred going to jail. We would have done a little bit more if we had time on all the Irish companies, a chunky enough group leaving the Irish Stock Exchange, but we'll come back to that on another podcast. We obviously talked as well about RT and inflation and the banking crisis. So when you put it all together, you can see... Vividly, there's a lot of that went on in 23. It wasn't just this filler year before we go into a US election and we leave COVID behind it. There was actually some real plates moving around in the undergrowth and in the firm. And so well done to both of you as my guests. Hopefully all three of us will be here healthy and well at this time next year. But for now, Linda Daly from the Sunday Times and Donald O'Donovan, Group Business Editor at Media Hoose Ireland. Thank you very much for joining me here on Business Impact. It's been a great conversation. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Business Impact.